So we're in week four of our series, The Spirit. Um, and we're answering kind of in the overarching question, uh, how did Christianity grow so quickly, right, and so far flung when so many of the other world religions didn't, right? And then the answer, what we're finding is the Holy Spirit at every step of the way, um, encouraging, reminding, illuminating, demonstrating, um, all of, for one purpose, to equip the believers um, to be bold witnesses to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ who died for us so that we could draw close to our Heavenly Father. I mean, that was the whole purpose of everything that the Holy Spirit was doing, all these amazing, amazing things. Um, and everybody in this incredible love story, from top to bottom, like from God all the way down to Satan, they all knew, all of them, top to bottom, knew there was one way that they could stop this whole thing, just stop it dead in its tracks. Fear. All it would take is fear. If the enemies of the church could instill fear into the early church, then Christianity could just, it, it would stop. It, it wouldn't grow. It would remain locked in its birthplace. Because nothing holds us back from obeying God, from loving our neighbor, from doing all the things that he wants us to be about more powerfully than fear. Um, fear just stops us cold. It leaves us, it leaves us paralyzed, really. Um, fear necessarily implies anxiety and therefore a loss of courage. Right? When we're afraid, we don't move. Literally, we're paralyzed. Because right? anything we do is going to make it worse. So stand still. Don't make anything worse. Um, and, 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 and I think lots of folks today are walking around, um, God calling them to do incredible things, and yet they're walking around being led by fear. Right? That, that's the dominating factor in their life. That's, that's, they run all their decisions through the fear factor in their lives. Is this going to make me more afraid? Is it going to make me... Uh, you know, uncomfortable. But God's word is super, super clear on this one. Over 80 times in scripture, fear not. Right? Joshua 1.9, don't, don't be afraid. Be courageous. Again and again and again, fear not. Fear not. He actually commands us not to fear, not to be overly anxious, and not to be lacking in courage. And to be perfectly clear on this, is not necessarily about innate fears, right? Doug talked about that. Um, you know, heights and sharks and snakes sharp objects and angry spouses. Like, these are things that can hurt you, and, and they're, they're innate. They're, they're, they'll do physical harm to you. And, and so it's, to a certain degree, it's healthy to be aware of these things, these innate fears. But you recognize something, I, I hope, that in Scripture, God calls us sometimes to even ignore innate fears, right? We're, we're called to walk in where angels fear to tread, right? Walk into places that will physically harm us. In fact, that's what Christ did, right? Physical, that was an innate fear that he faced head on. And so we are sometimes called to live a dangerous life, I guess. Um, but there are other two kinds of fears. They're, they're tightly related, and, and, and all these fears relate to today's passage I'll be looking at. Um, two other fears, identity fears and relational fears. Very quickly, innate fears, obviously the ones that are going to do you real physical harm. And then there's the identity fears, fears of being judged by others, right? You, you imagine that you've lost the respect of your peers, and it physically hurts. It, it will make you cry, right? But you, but you didn't actually take a shot to the body. Nobody cut you. Nobody punched you, but it hurts, and relational fears, right? Fear of being abandoned and rejected. Um, trust issues show up in this category, right? Fear of commitment, fear of intimacy, right? You've been hurt once, I'm not going to get hurt again. So, phew, fear of 
being open to people. The phrase fear not is used so many times in the Bible, most likely because God knows, that Satan knows, that we will be stopped with fear. Fear will rob us of the abundant life. Um, there's a song out right now. I know you guys have heard it. Maybe you've been thinking about it. Um, as I was putting this all together, all I could think of, I was sitting there in my office singing this, this song over again. Zach Williams, I think he nails it, right? Fear is a liar. Fear is a liar. In this song, he writes this, and I, and I want you to listen to the identity fears of not being enough and, and the relational fears that drive us from God and neighbors. Let me just read these lyrics. When he told you that you're not strong enough to put up a good fight, when he told you you're not worthy, when he told you you're not loved, when he told you you're not beautiful and you'll never be enough, fear is a liar. He'll take your breath, stop you in your steps. He'll rob you of your rest, steal your happiness. So his advice, cast your fear in the fire because fear, he is a liar. So I, I, I you know, you, you look at that and you, you, I, I looked at all the biblical phrases that he uses in his song and I thought, I better check up on this because this could be something weird. And so I, I, I found an interview, Digital Journey did an interview with him. And he states this. He says, fear is a liar is a declaration of encouragement and some scriptural reality that he wanted to communicate to his fans. Um, the three guys that wrote the song in a few hours, we're really happy the way it came out since we put a face to the name. I love that. Fear. Put a face, fear, on the name of Satan, right? Satan is fear. I, I love the way he, he does that. We're calling out the devil for who he is, reminding him that he's a liar, and that he's already been defeated. That was the idea of the song, and I wanted something that people could relate to and find hope in it. And the song continues, when you're told that you were troubled, you'll forever be alone. When he told you that you should run away and you'll never find a home. When he told you you were dirty and that you should be afraid, ashamed. And then the, and then the lie that, that just leaves... You, leaves your blood cold it, it, when he told you that you could be the one that grace could never change. Satan's a liar, right? We, we know this. If the main actor um, in chapters 1 and 2 of Acts is the Holy Spirit, right, through the, through the apostles, um, it almost seems as if the key player in chapters 3 and 4 all the way through really the beginning of 6 it's, it's fear, right? It, it, it's Satan, like the evil one, the accuser, whatever you want to call him, right? Through some of the old tools that we're going to look at this morning. Same old tools he's been using since the very beginning. Um, but he's only mentioned once in chapters 3 through the beginning of 6, only once. And we're going to look at that very quickly here. But he's lurking in the shadows, right? As you read through these chapters, you just you see him, you, you, you sense him lurking, lurking in the shadows, um, this is in Acts chapter 5. Again, the only mention, verse 3. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to give you the context of this in just a minute, but I'm just going to read it straight out right now. Peter said to Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira had brought some property, sold it, dumped money at the feet of the disciples, and they weren't being honest. We'll, we'll get to that. Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money that you received for the land? Now, again, we're going to explain this in a little bit more detail, but in chapter 4, this is chapter 5, chapter 4 closes um, with a man selling a field, right? He sells the field and he lays the money at the feet of the disciples. It's a wonderful, loving, incredible thing. And then chapter 5, same exact thing. A, a, a couple this time sell their, a field and they lay the money at the disciples' feet like this is repeated three times now through this. Um, but this time it's different. Ananias and Sapphira, it, it, it's radically different this time. Um, as far as the onlookers are concerned... 
right? It's two men standing in opposition to one another. One of them has lied to the other. But Peter, right, he's, he's filled with the Holy Spirit now. He's no longer filled with himself, right, through, through the Gospels, like he's filled with himself, and he just says, you know, one stupid thing happened. He, he hits a few things really on, but he's just all over the map. But now he's filled with the Holy Spirit, right? And he discerns, right? He sees behind these two men standing there, and it's like there's something going on behind the scenes or something spiritual going on behind the scenes. Again, filled with the Holy Spirit, he could see the unseen reality. It was the Holy Spirit being lied to by the devil himself, right? Right there. Satan has so filled you in your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit whom Peter was filled with. So you have one filled with Satan and one filled with the Holy Spirit, and that's who's doing the talking. The men are just the puppets at this point, right? Ananias and Peter standing behind them. Fear's a liar. A couple weeks ago, I told you, um, shared with you some books that, that, that are fun to read side by side, and I want to throw out another one today. Um, Acts is a really great book to read side by side with the book of Revelation, right? Um, in, in the book of Acts, it, it, it's everything that's observed on the, and recorded on the stage of history, right? Um, but in the book of Revelation, it's like the curtain is pulled back, and you see what's going on behind the scenes of the early church. In Acts, you see people, but in Revelation, you see not people, but you see some, a red dragon, right? And you see these two grotesque monsters and, and a prostitute. I mean, it's, it's like, wow, you know, humans, and then, ah, uh, this, this spiritual world um, over here. So both, again, record the history and the early trials and difficulties of the early church, but from radically, radically different perspectives. Um, in Acts, it's humans that oppose and undermine the church. But in Revelation, again, it's the red dragon, right? Satan, um, with his three friends. And, and, and again, like the parallel, a little homework for you because I'm not going to have time to go into this, but go home, go home, check out Revelation and just see how closely these three minions of Satan's, right, the two monsters and the whore, how closely those three match what's, what, what, what Satan's going to do in the book of Acts, right, the tools he's going to use to stop the early church, persecution, compromise, and distractions. And you go home and you read Revelation, the exact same three, exact same three. Um, a lot of the material I, I got for this message this morning, a guy named John Stott, uh, John R.W. Stott. Uh, he is a brilliant Anglican theologian, Bible scholar. Um, and he says this about Satan. He says, uh, Satan is incredibly, what was the word I had? Um, incredibly unimaginative over the years, right? This, it's, it's, he's got three tools in his tool bags, and, he, and that's all he uses. And, and you think that we as followers of Jesus Christ, we would begin to recognize these same three over and over and over and over again, and yet he still gets us. He still gets us with these, these bag of tricks of his. So we're going to take a look at all these weapons, these three weapons that Satan uses to instill fear where courage and power should reside. And actually how Satan uses those three kinds of fears against us, right? He, he knows. God knows that he knows. And so God provides the Holy Spirit to counteract this, this fear. So uh, we're going to look in the, in the context of Acts chapter 3 through the beginning of 6. I'm going to start Acts chapter 3, verse 1. One day, Peter and John, they're going up to the temple at the time of prayer, about 3 in the afternoon. Now understand something. Um, the early disciples, they weren't out trying to start a new religion. You, you'll recognize that they still did all the things that good Jewish people did. Right? They still went to temple. They still, I mean, everything, the whole nine yards pretty much. 
It really doesn't become a separate faith for maybe 100 years. It's going to take a Jewish civil war in about 132 A.D. It's going to take a couple false messiahs that the church doesn't support and the Jews see as, oh, here's the Messiah, and the Christians are like, no, you missed them, which made the Jews even matter at the Christians. So eventually they split, but that's another whole story entirely. Um, but understand they're, they're still doing good Jewish things. Um, now what Luke is going to do, um, he's going to supply, and he, he does this throughout his book, he'll supply a general statement, right? And I've, I've had to do this because I, I, I write a lot of letters of recommendation. And I was told early on, if you're going to write a letter, letter of recommendation, if you say that they're trustworthy, you need to give an example. If you say that they're honest, you need to give an example. That's just something I learned to do. And, and this is exactly what Luke does, right? He'll, he'll make a general statement, and then he'll, he'll back it up with a specific example, right? So back in chapter 2, he makes a very general statement. Right in the middle of every, well, I don't think every pastor, but every church person's description of every church person's dream church. Listen to this. This is back in chapter 2. I'm going to back up here. Uh, chapter 2 at the very end of the chapter, starting in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer. And right in the middle of this, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. So according to this line right here, there were a lot of things that the apostles were doing. Lots of signs and wonders. But Luke's only going to share one, right? He's, he's going to share, like we read earlier, the healing of the cripple um, as an example. But, but understand, everybody, that, that, that the apostles are doing this like all over the place, right? And Luke's just like, okay, I'm going to give you an example, all right? Um, so uh, in, in 42, 46, the, the passage continues. All the believers were together, had everything in common. They sold property, possessions to give to everyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Um, and the passage concludes. They broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And this last line catches everybody's attention. Ah, this must be the formula. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, two things I want you to look at very quickly. We're not going to look at them really this morning, but... We'll call it homework. We'll call it, you know, whatever we want, but I'm not going to get too deeply into this. Um, lots of debate, lots of, lots of books written, lots of careers, right, started and ended based on these, these two questions. First, and again, I'm not going to provide an answer because I don't have an answer. I, I'm, it's, I don't know. <laughs> um, was it primarily the apostles who performed all the signs and wonders because there seems to be a division in the text. It's always the apostles and not the believers. The apostles do something and the believers did something else. Now, again, it's not super clean, clear cut, but there seems to be. So that, that's a question a lot of scholars kind of look at. And the, and the second one is related to it. Um, was it primarily the signs and wonders of the apostles that led to people finding Christ? Or was it the bold Holy Spirit preaching that led people to Christ? Now, there are a lot of churches... A lot of people believe it's, you can't do anything without signs and wonders. You, you just, you're not a church if you don't have signs and wonders, and there are others. It's the bold preaching. It's the spirit-filled preaching. Well, now, in the passage, I don't know. I, they, they both played a role, but, again, that's just something that you're just going to have to wrestle, wrestle with just a little bit. Um, so back to Luke's example and his general statement. He's made the general statement. Now he's going to give us an example. Um, now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful. We read this earlier today. Where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. Now we know he's crippled from birth, but, he, but he's not a dummy, right? Because number one, 
where he placed himself, people are on their way to temple, God's on their mind, and they're feeling guilty about all the things that they should have done good this week, but they didn't do, and then they see the cripple, right? This, this is the perfect beggar's storm, the trifecta of the beggar's world, right? If you can plant yourself where people are going to church, they're thinking about God, and they're feeling guilty, <laughs> you're going to get something. So, so he's a smart guy, smart guy. Um, But what follows in chapters 3 and 4, I'm not going to go into great detail, but it parallels perfectly what happened in chapters 1 and 2. Luke's making a statement here. Watch this. All right? So in Acts 1 and 2 and in Acts 3 and 4, a miraculous event is described by, from a bystander's kind of point of view, right? In in chapter 1 and 2, it's the Pentecost experience. In chapters 3 and 4, it's the healing of the crippled man. And just as the New Testament writers were convinced that Jesus Christ had inaugurated the last days, right, the day of the Lord, um, and the proof was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, um, Luke is now telling his reading audience and us that that same power that raised Christ from the dead is that same exact power that you saw on Pentecost, and that same exact power is what you're seeing right here, right? This is that. This is that. Remember from last week, this, what you're seeing right now, is that that the prophets were talking about. This is that. So Luke is telling them the audience, right, this is the same spirit. And then the miraculous event is explained by Peter in a speech. That's just, I mean, it, it just parallels. Again, you're going to go home and check this out yourself. A speech by Peter that glorifies Jesus, that they killed, <laughs> um, but God raised to the dead, from the dead, which they've all witnessed, Right? This is that. And the power that raised Jesus is the same power as at Pentecost and today displayed before your very eyes. Then Peter appeals to the crowd, same as in chapters 1 and 2, exact same thing, almost identical speech, right? He, He says to the crowd, you didn't know what you were doing when you killed our Savior, but it was still evil and you need to be forgiven. You need to repent. And then he tells them, this is how you repent. Repent and believe and you'll be forgiven. Fantastic. And then finally, at the very end, you have a spirit-filled church. The end of chapter 2, the end of chapter 4. Identical. It's just crazy. In Acts chapter 1 and 2 is the breaking of bread, fellowshipping, helping each other out, praying and growing. And now at the close of chapter 4, even in the face of brutal persecution, which was Satan's first tool, right, just brute physical fear, right? I will hit you with a big stick if you don't stop talking about Jesus Right? That, that, basically, that, that's what happens in chapter 4. Um, so how did the church deal with this first attack by Satan, this, this, this intense physical brute persecution and a warning to stop or else? Chapter 4, verses 29 and 30. Now they, they, they prayed. This is what they said. Watch this. This is amazing. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And so they prayed, and then they went home saying to each other, see you all next week. You don't believe me, right? I hope you don't. No, man, they prayed, and then they went right back out, right back out. Listen to this, verse 31. After they prayed, the place was where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God boldly. No, they didn't go home. They went right back to work. Fear was taken care of. Boom, they were released. And the result was, once again, just like in chapters 1 and 2, a spirit-filled church. This is verse 32. And the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. 
And with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. And then verse 35, and this is, we're going to turn a corner here. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. You notice the, the, the verbiage here. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. And it was occasional. Um, and this is Satan's second attack, right? Moral corruption, compromise. Um, if brutal physical persecution wouldn't work, maybe something more subtle, right? So Luke makes a general statement. You know, occasionally people would sell their land and they'd lay their money at the apostles' feet. And so he gives two examples this time. But they're, they're, they're contrasting examples. One spirit-filled, which is at the end of chapter 4, and then one's filled with Satan. Start off chapter 5. So at the end of chapter 4, Joseph, this is the very last verse, two verses. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money, and put the money at the apostles' feet, right? This must have been what they did. We put it in a plate or stick it in they, they place it at the apostles' feet, whatever. And then to begin chapter 5, the passage that we started with this morning. So that was a really, really beautiful thing. Now we have a not-so-beautiful thing. Satan's showing up again, right? He was, he was hanging out in the shadows, and whew, now he's going to make an appearance. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Now understand... It wasn't greed that Peter's focusing on right now because, as you're going to find out, the punishment of the Holy Spirit, it seems a little bit uh, drastic. Um, he, they're going to pay with their life. And I, I, don't, I don't know, but he, all I know is Peter didn't focus on the greed. He focused on the dishonesty, right? Because he knew intuitively the dishonesty in this brand new community that was so built on trust and love, if dishonesty was allowed into this community, it could ruin everything. People would fear. They would live in fear that the person next to them wasn't the person that they were saying that they were. Right? They might not. They might be lying. So, so fear. Satan knew he could build fear into this early community through persecution and now through moral compromise. Is the person next to me, are they good or bad? Are they lying to me or are they being honest, right? And then the whole community is no longer a community. So Peter acts quickly and decisively, as does the Holy Spirit. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and kept yourself some of the money that you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't it the money at your disposal? And again, this has been... Uh, scholars have brought this out to, to say that the early disciples really weren't practicing a form of socialism or communism, right? Peter makes clear there's no compulsion to bring all your stuff in and then it's divvied out whenever there was a need. Somebody, the Holy Spirit would fill somebody and they'd say, hey, I, I, I can meet that need. I, I can do this. So this is what's going on here. What made you think of doing such a thing? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but you've lied to God. So here we have the gist of Satan's second attack, moral corruption. And the Holy Spirit's response, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And a great fear seized all who have heard, who had heard what had happened. And a couple verses on, his wife shows up and Peter says, so how much did you sell the land for? <laughs> she lies. <laughs> Dead. 
But the pattern, the pattern repeats itself again and and again. The the apostles then perform signs and wonders, followed by vicious persecution, like Satan's not going to let up on that one because we're all, we all got innate fears. Like that's the one that he really gets us moving with. Um, only this time, like they're flogged before being released, right? Sent home with a stern warning. Stop preaching in the name of Jesus or else. I'm going to hit you with a big stick. But the pattern continues regardless of the warnings. Verse 41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And day after day in the temple courts from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that was Jesus is the Messiah. So Satan launches his third attack, So we're going to get into next. If he couldn't beat them into submission with brute physical persecution, and he couldn't weasel them in to submission with, you know, compromising positions and situations, he would try to distract the church leaders. Listen to this. Begin to chapter 6, verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples were increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained that the Hebraic Jews, because their widows, were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the church was doing what the church should do, right? They were, they were helping people in need, but it looked like the pastors were getting too involved and they were getting distracted. Now, I don't know about you, but when I got a big task in front of me, something I, I got to do and it's important, I can find, my wife will testify, I can find 10,000 other things to do because I'm so afraid of doing that one task. Like I'm in, in my mind, it's going to take seven years. And when I finally get to it, it took seven minutes, right? You ever have that? But you're so afraid that you do everything else. Diane's like, what in the world are you doing? Well, I have to do that. So I'm doing this. <laughs> what do you think I'm doing? Because I don't want to do that. I'm afraid. I don't want to, I don't want to tackle that yet. Fear. Again, just it's this crazy fear. Um, by far the evil one's most subtle use of fear, but the Holy Spirit's inspired response. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, look, it would not be right for us to neglect, neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. It's very insulting, but anyway. <laughs> um, Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, and we'll turn this responsibility over to them, and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. So rather than focusing their time and gifting on on studying God's word, the apostles were caught up doing some of the things that maybe the body should be doing. Um, You know, being the priesthood of believers, serving one another. But anyway, once things got squared away, the rather predictable result, by this point, you all should be able to figure out what's going to be the result. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient. Now that's a strange ending. Priests. I think you're seeing this. The priests, they were probably the ones most involved with Scripture. So it says the apostles start reminding them this was that, this was that. My guess is the priests were very quickly. They were like, oh, my goodness. This is what he was talking about. And they're like, they're, they're making the connections, right? The common folk are a little slower. But the priests, like, this is their life, right? They're, and and, and it's, it's amazing. I, I just, I just love, love that. Um, uh, persecution, moral corruption, compromise. Distractions, they all play on our fears. But according to Luke, the early church overcame these age-old tricks of Satan. How? By being filled with the Holy Spirit. Fellowship of believers breaking bread together with glad hearts, glad and sincere hearts, helping each other out in need and by praying boldly and then going out and preaching boldly. Fear was cast out of that community. Now, we know when we read the letters of Paul that problems weren't cast out, right? Satan never stops his attacks, 
And you read through the letters of Paul, and Satan was active in every one of those churches, in, lurking in the shadows, making people afraid to step out into this new territory that God was calling them. I'm going to be sharing communion in just a few minutes, but I'd like to close with a some very timely observations of human nature. This was made by a marketing guru guy I follow. Um, the first thing he says, we as followers of Jesus Christ, we, we understand this, right? Um, who we are isn't the same as what we do, right? We, we know this, right? And, and, we, and we see Christians who sometimes, like, they get so caught up in, in doing things as their identity as opposed to being a certain kind of person, Right? I, I, I see this on TV, you know, NFL quarterbacks, and their identity became their NFL quarterbackship. They forgot that their true identity were, were to be men of God. So when they lose as a quarterback, their whole world falls out from underneath them. But it's not that way when, when Christ is the center of everything. So who we are isn't the same thing as, as what we do. But then he continues. He says, but sometimes what we do can change who we are. And he writes this. I'm not going to try to explain it because I'll just jack it all up. It says, our identity describes the person we see in the mirror. The groups we identify with, the versions of ourselves and the reality that we come back to over and over. I'm not a writer. I'm not an entrepreneur. I'm not a leader. Those are all fairly definitive statements. But when the world changes, and our world has changed and the church world has also changed and should change. Hang on to that. But when the world changes, opportunities change as well. All of us struggle when our identity doesn't match the reality of the world around us. And in the face of that confusion and fear, it's tempting to abandon possibility and to walk away from an opportunity simply because it doesn't resonate with the person we are at this moment. And that's kind of where we all are right now. We've gotten so used to, to doing church, and this is the way we do things, and this is the way you act as a Christian, and, but the world has, has changed in this past year. And I think the Holy Spirit is, is, is calling us to maybe try something different, try something new, something you haven't done before. Don't, don't just go right back to the old ways that maybe weren't working all that well anyway. But the Holy Spirit is calling us, calling us. The bottom line, bottom line, he says this. Sometimes... What we do can change. <laughs> we can change who we are. That, that's the bottom line. We can change who we are. This is the promise from God. You can be a new creature. Totally different from the past that has defined you up to this point. But only when we do something new. And, and, and the Holy Spirit is calling us to do something new, to live a different kind of life than the way maybe we've gotten used to living but only when we do something new do we often begin to become someone new. As we share communion this morning, I want you to consider what fear has stopped you. I don't know what God's calling you to do, either as a Christian, as a church person. What fear, and just kind of put your finger on it, that's what I'm afraid of. The pastor's going to call me and ask me, that's what I'm afraid of. Someone's going to call me and ask me to explain, that's what I'm afraid of. I don't know what your fear is. You just, I want you to just kind of bring it up in your mind. What is that fear that you have? And I want you to add, just, just, we're going to share communion, and I want you figuratively to lay it on the altar and replace it, replace it with a filling, a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. Because when the Holy Spirit 
fills us, we've learned today, fear is cast out. You're not going to be able to do this on your own. A lot of you are going to be, ah, we'll just skip this step. I'll just go out and keep trying myself. Well, good luck. How's that got you so far? Try something new this time. Participate in this ancient ritual and understand it's, it is mystery. It's mystery. It's not an automatic. It's not a formula. It's nothing like that. Literally, we come to communion with, a, with our open hands. And God fills us, not with ourselves. <laughs> That'd be dumb. He fills us with himself. He fills us with his Holy Spirit. That was the idea. When we take in the bread and we take in the juice, we're filling ourselves symbolically with him. So this morning, I want to challenge you. Lay the fear at the altar and be filled with the Holy Spirit instead. You bow your heads. Father, as we share communion this morning, we, we have fears that you want to chase away, that you know are stopping us. So, Father, by the power of your Spirit and this thing that you, you asked us to do continually until you return, and every time we do it, we scream at the world, this is the answer, this is the way forward. We proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thank you for filling us with your spirit and for showing us the way that we need to live. Father, give us courage. Chase out all fear because fear is a liar. Amen.